Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show. But if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Welcome to Thank You For Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. So welcome to the very special Hamilton bonus episode of Thank You for Your Service podcast. Jim and I, well, really I, (laughs) decided at the last minute, you know what would be really fun would be to do a quick episode talking about the civil-military relations of Hamilton, because we're both big Hamilton fans, and we know people who are also big Hamilton fans, and so uh, at the very last moment, two wonderful people agreed to join us. That is Shannon Culbertson and Simone Williams. Shannon and Simone both work at CSIS, although Shannon technically belongs to the Department of Defense as a civilian, and we'll head back there all too soon, but is is with us in ISP for the year, which is delightful. And Simone Williams works at the Project on Nuclear Issues in ISP at CSIS. But most importantly for our purposes today, they're both huge Hamilton fans. Hi, ladies. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alice. Hi, Jim. Hey, guys. We are recording this on Friday afternoon, the 3rd of July. The Hamilton film has been out for less than 24 hours. <laughs> Shannon and I both confess that we're cranky old people, so we're going to watch it at night. Uh, we weren't going to wake up at 3 a.m., uh, but but that doesn't mean we aren't diehard fans. And Simone pointed out, well, I waited till I woke up in the morning to watch it. <laughs> this is, these are facts, yes. Um, Jim, have you seen it yet? I have not seen uh, the the new release. I have seen it on the stage in London, but we are waiting to watch this until tonight when my whole family can huddle around a computer and watch it on the floor of our empty house. (laughs) Because you guys have just PCS'd for the last time you are in Austin, Texas. That's so exciting. But we have all listened at least to Hamilton, I'm going to say 10 million times a piece. So the first thing I wanted to just ask everybody, and maybe I'll, I'll launch it with Jim, when you think civil relations in Hamilton, what comes to your mind first? I think the first thing that comes is sort of the rise up mentality, sort of the using the military as a ladder for social mobility, as a ladder for distinguishing yourself in society. I think that's, I mean, that's the first sort of theme that jumps out in the musical itself, sort of chronologically. So that's what always comes up for me. And then I think there's the other parts about Hamilton's actual service in the war, where he thinks he's going to be a great battlefield commander. Washington actually thinks it's more important to use his talents to write and issue commands and and to build support with the public and Congress. And so whereas he thinks that this is all about fighting, it actually turns out that much of his job turns out to be selling the Congress on the war and issuing commands for Washington. 
definitely what Jim said in terms of, so when I was listening to Hamilton, of course, it's easy to pick up on how Hamilton is obsessed with his legacy, but I hadn't realized how he uses his obsession of legacy through using the military and his gaining a role in military to be able to be that person who can be revered um, and to make an impact. So in his mind, that was the only way to make a role. Um, the number of times I've listened to the songs and then just with the rewatching as well, it's also really interesting to me, the number of times service is mentioned throughout the play, whether it's somebody saying that they're ready to serve or that they are serving. You've got Eliza saying to Hamilton, thank you for your service when she first meets him. So like service just like keeps popping up and it's just really interesting the numbers of ways it's portrayed in the play. Yeah, the actual uttering of the thank you of your, for your service by Washington stood out to me, too, because it is such a counterweight in that moment, at least, to Lawrence and to Hamilton, who are in that moment sort of being those impetuous, impatient, ambitious young officers and chafing sort of under a more staid politic and likely wiser commander. And that moment of friction where Washington very clearly says thank you for your service to somebody who, you know, if unless he is an irrational person, he probably dislikes pretty intensely by that moment. It is a, a nod to service even among those who don't agree with each other. Yeah, Shannon and I were talking about this a long time ago. And Shannon, you mentioned that, you know, as a, a, a lover of Hamilton, the musical, you are evangelical about it and you try to get everyone to, to listen. Um, and I am now like that as well. And you were saying that when you run into folks that kind of are like, I don't know, would I like that musical, especially folks in uniform, you have a scene in there. It's either that scene or a similar scene between Hamilton and Washington where you go, but I bet there's pieces of this that you would really recognize. Yeah, it's the next scene where he basically fires Hamilton. And there's just something so familiar about it. Like I said, the young, brilliant, ambitious, impetuous impatient young officer who has all of these ideas and wants to press on and is sort of bristling at personal remarks made by one senior commander about Washington and he wants to fight about it. And that sort of energy felt so familiar after having spent some time talking to and knowing other young, impetuous, ambitious young officers who have also chafed in that situation. And I was thinking this morning, like, is that just a feeling I have? But then off the top of my head, I was able to think of two or three people who I know personally who basically had that happen in their early in their career where they pushed and they pushed and they pushed and they pushed up against somebody and then finally got benched sort of temporarily. And then like Hamilton brought back into the fold, having learned that, you know, you do have to be politic at times, even in the military, and take a longer view rather than sort of impatient and impetuous and, and eager to be done in that moment. So there did seem to me to be something universal in that interaction between a young Hamilton and an older, sort of wiser Washington. What do you think about that, Jim? I'm curious on your take. I definitely can relate to that. I think there are a lot of parts of the play that people in uniform can relate to. For me, I didn't come to it even thinking about it as a military play. I came to it because my kids were listening to it all the time. And it was on in our uh, van for pretty much two years straight. And so I, I didn't have much choice whether I was going to listen to it <laughs> or not. Um, but I think the sort of being submerged into it, it brings up these broader themes of what is service all about? What are the relationships between battlefield commanders and staffs? What are the relationships between staff officers and commanders? Like this idea of how much of 
being effective in battle is sort of aggression and acting quickly and those types of things that we usually think of, the audacity versus the wisdom and sort of strategic mindset that Washington takes up. And it, it is fascinating to watch sort of that interplay between Washington and Hamilton that I think plays out really interestingly throughout the play. Simone, you brought up service first when we were talking about our initial reactions. And I'm sort of curious, you know, we just did an episode on service and a lot of what I like to emphasize on the Civ Mill side is the Civ side. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about what Hamilton makes you think about national service and about your own thoughts about being in the national security sector. Those of us that watch Hamilton and work in this field, there's like a an extra intimacy to it, I think, for us. When I think about service, I will admit, I was definitely one of those people who first thought that the only way to serve was through military service, which, of course, as we know, separates out a large part of the population. But it was through my work with national security that I started realizing, because you, you hear the term all the time, public service, and thank you for your service. <laughs> so that was when I started thinking, oh, there are other ways to serve, which is when I realized that it's not just a job. It is indeed service that um, public servants are doing. But then also, once I started reflecting on it more, I realized it's not just the jobs you do or the military service you do. It's also the community service you do. Like it even has service in this title. So I felt like that was weird to not include that. But overall, service for me is doing something to help somebody else outside of gaining something from it. And another thing I think that is reflected in the play as well as like when they're building up the nation, like after the after war, they're now like we have to build up a nation. So like that is service in itself. Like they are serving the larger community. Hamilton writes feverishly all these papers saying why we need to defend the Constitution. And like that's his service. He's just writing day and night. But it's interesting to see the different aspects of service and then to recognize that Anybody can serve and you can do it well, as long as you have passion and dedication to rise above yourself and do it in honor of somebody else. I think that's at least that's how I think about service. Well, I'm glad you brought up Act Two, because that's the other big theme I think that's worth us tackling is thinking through how all of these citizen soldiers and these, you know, mostly men who rose up in the revolution then go on to become politicians, right? And they go on to to run the government. And Washington, of course, is the archetype of that, that he was the general officer who resigns his commission, although that part's not in the show, and then becomes president. And so this idea of the, the soldier statesman, the soldier citizen is really embodied in the show. And I thought it's sort of fascinating to think about because right now we're having all these discussions about the number of retired general and flag officers who are then going into government and taking political roles, right? I mean, I have always been of the mind that I have no problem with people leaving a life of military service to go into a life of politics or political service. I think the distinction, which, as you point out, isn't in the play, is whether you can put aside your sort of military identity and whether you can manage to sort of break away and be your own person or whether you continue to be sort of the embodiment of the military institution. And I think that's difficult with Washington, but I think he really did become his own man. And both between, you know, resigning his commission, going back to Mount Vernon, and, you know, coming back into government, 
there still was a, a clear understanding that he was a former general, but he also took on a larger than life personality that I don't think was based solely on his military service, though it's hard to to separate that for anybody. Shannon, when we were all exchanging emails, you pointed out that scene where they're talking about Hamilton trying to get his debt plan through Congress. And at the end of it, Washington says, figure it out. That's an order from your commander. Can you talk more about sort of how that scene strikes you? It struck me, actually, the use of that line. And I, I think this is obviously artistic licenses, definitely granted. It's certainly intended to echo the scene that I was talking about a little bit earlier, where he fires him and he sends him home for a while. I mean, he says, go home. That's an order from your commander. And he does it in that scene, I think, to remind him, because Hamilton is basically mouthing off at that point, remind him who his boss is and who he works for. And I think that obviously that is an intentional echo in, in the debt plan conversation, because he has just said, you know, I imagine they'll call for your removal. If you don't get this done, you're going to get fired. And so he's echoing that as well. You hope that in history that Washington didn't actually say that, because that is not why Hamilton should do it. He <laughs> should do it because he's his boss and because they're working for yeah. the American people and that's his job. And then in the, the second cabinet battle, Hamilton is full on sort of political animal, where he basically says, notwithstanding my relationship with Lafayette and the French, we're not going to help them because that's not the right thing to do for America. And that arc of sort of starting out where he encourages a duel that shoots a fellow general officer, the second one where he's, you know, he has to be reminded what his job is and then he might get fired. And then the third one, he has kind of adopted that very calculating political national perspective, I think is is real growth for him in that way, from being um, a young officer to being a national leadership role. Yeah. And what's striking me too in this conversation is sort of the bonds of your fellow service members versus what's your role and responsibility now. I mean, I think, you know, everybody sort of talked about how when General Mattis became Secretary Mattis, he brought a lot of folks from the Marine Corps and from CENTCOM into the front office with him. There was a lot of talk about, you know, the secretary is a Marine, the chairman is a Marine. But he also brought in people who he may have known, but weren't his right hand man. So, I mean, he said, we're talking about Mattis or George. Uh, we're talking about George. OK, <laughs> so, I mean, he brings up what he had to know was going to be a controversial secretary of state and secretary of treasury who had divergent views. Um, yeah. So by bringing Jefferson and, and Hamilton in together, it actually, you know, set up a very different mindset where it wasn't all just um, Washington's political lackeys. And mm -hmm. it brings out the the great quote where Hamilton and Jefferson are arguing. And Hamilton actually says, you know, don't lecture me on a war you didn't fight in. I almost died in a trench while you were off getting high with the French. Yeah. So there's this like air of superiority that Hamilton like falls back on the crutch of his military service when he, at least again, this is artistic license, but Instead of trying to counter on the arguments, he counters on, you know, lack of credibility because of lack of military service that Jefferson had. Yeah, I wanted to raise that, too. I'm glad you did, because that's also an issue in our day, right? There's a tendency to say between military and civilians and also between folks who've served in the military, who has combat experience and who doesn't. And there's this idea that combat experience, like you said, Jim, confers the superiority that people can use as a trump card. You see that now a lot as well in campaigns, whether it's local or at the state and federal level as well. Oftentimes you'll see that somebody is pushing through and is getting 
recommended and highlighted because of their service that they had. And it's almost kind of like a way to also be able to get those votes. A lot of people not necessarily rely, but they do see a certain level of superiority or at least credibility and ability to get the work done. This is definitely a general generalization, but I think a lot of people equate the military with the ability to get something done. Therefore, somebody who has served in the military and is now running for office can go and get something done. Um, I think that's a parallel that um, a lot of people are making. And another reason as to why military is held at such high reverence sometimes. Yeah. In the musical, you know, Hamilton's military service really gives him all kinds of advantages, right? He goes in saying, I can rise above my station, right? This is a this is a means of social mobility for me. But it turns out to also be a political tool for him later on, right? And again, those are the kinds of things we're still talking about today, even though it's hundreds of years later, it's an all-volunteer force later, it's post-World War II, you know, huge changes. And yet there's something about this sort of in our DNA. Do you guys think it was because, you know, we were sort of born in a revolutionary war and that just like colored our politics forever? I'm guessing Jim has actual data on this. (laughs) Jim is usually the one with data. (laughs) So I think the thing that's fascinating about this without going into data first is that (laughs) when you actually look at the debates of the time, you have people who are very skeptical of a standing military. And so even though all of them fought in the revolution, even though, um, at least in the play, they're using their military service for credibility. At the same time, not everyone, Hamilton was actually strongly in favor of a standing army. There were a lot of people who were very concerned about it. And so it is something worth reflecting on. How did we get from a point where you had a large number of founders who served in the military concerned about a standing military to the point where we now have a standing military and very few people seem to be critical of it. The one data point I will make is that Simone is largely right. When we've looked at why people hold the military in high regard, the main reason, at least, that Peter Fever and I have found so far is that people think that the military works and that other civilian institutions don't. It really, at least, seems to be about competence and getting things done. And that holds with all the other institutions we've compared so far. One other thing in the musical that I want to make sure we touch on that I think military families especially appreciate, but so do the families of people that serve in high office. You know, Eliza and Angelica constantly telling Hamilton to take a break, right? You know, they're holding up the the household and the kids and Hamilton is either off fighting a war or he's off standing up a treasury department. I I wanted to sort of touch on that, sort of this idea that we think a lot about the sort of sacrifices that military families make. But there's something universal in that idea, right? That idea that there are members of the family that have to absent themselves for a time, and then there are members of the family who are around. So I'd throw that open to the group if anybody has any sort of responses to that. One of my favorite parts of Hamilton... And there are a lot of them, but one of them is in One Last Time where Washington talks about the scripture and he says that, I have to read it, everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. There's this idea that national service provides that 
to the nation that this is why you do it. And I think that that, that touches, I think, a lot of us who've been in, in national service for sure, any kind of public service, honestly. But the following line is also interesting because he says, I want to sit in the shade. You know, I want to sit under my under my fig tree in the shade. And I think those two things together is a lot about the compact between those who are served and those who serve, which is, you know, this is why we get into this. This is why we serve the nation. But there is also, you know, an expectation and a hope that when that service is complete, that certainly for military veterans, that there is an ability to frankly, to rest, to take a break, and that those they have served will provide them or provide them with that. Um, and I think that that gets a lot into sort of what we owe our veterans and our retirees and those folks who have served, that sort of back and forth of, I serve, but that entails sacrifice. And I hope for service is its own reward, but I, I also hope for sort of the, the care and the support of, of those who I serve. In addition to the take a break song that emphasizes the role of military families, it's also in the first act when Eliza sends the notes saying, send Hamilton home, basically, because I'm pregnant. And like, I, I would like to have my husband. So we have a family. <laughs> um, but it shows that it is something that not only impacts the individual who's serving, but their community and their family as well. So it's it's an impact on um, a larger group of people. And it's not just one person. Families serve. Yeah. What about you, Jim? Yeah, I mean, I think as I think about this, as I am in the final stages here of retirement, you know, thinking about the cost that my family has paid, you know, missing large periods where my wife was pregnant and alone, dealing with, you know, small kids, with me working too many hours. That's not just the military. There are all sorts of public servants um, who do that. Diplomats oftentimes have to be separated from their families too, contractors, all sorts of other people. But I do think there is a cost that can be hard to recognize in the time, in the moment, because I think sometimes we do put our own service on such a high pedestal and we think that we are so instrumental, even when we're working for important causes, it can uh, cause us to lose sight of the things that are really important, our families, our friends, you know, sometimes even our values. And I think one of the parts of the play that I really like is at the end when it's quiet uptown. I think it's just a really reflective piece, I think, for me, where Hamilton, who is a deeply flawed man, a deeply flawed character in the play, I think, finally has a chance to sort of rest and reflect um, and wrestle with some of the times when he, he didn't take a break. I mean, it's really the first time in the play we see him taking a true break. And, and for whatever reason, for me, that's that's a really powerful song to, to listen to every time. I remember the, the one time I've seen it in a theater, my husband took me for my birthday a few years ago when it was in Washington. And you know, at the end, Eliza has the last word, right? We hear from Eliza last in the show. And I remember turning to him and saying, man, the musical should be about Eliza. <laughs> because talk about service, right? Talk about not only all the things she did to support Hamilton during his life, but then all the things she does in the 50 years she you know, survives him after his life to go on and serve the country. Another thought I was thinking of is how you see, because when we were talking about before about like the standing army and how the founding far, far, founding farmers. <laughs> That's a restaurant in Washington, D.C., listeners, if you don't know that. <laughs> how our founding fathers were so opposed to that and in the way they upstart for us. 
But it's really interesting because it's so in contrast to King George, where he's threatening to send <laughs> to send a fully armed battalion to to people's families. <laughs> to remind you of my love. Yeah, it's so great. Exactly. But um, I think that contrast is really interesting because it shows, I think overall, when I think about sub-male relations, the reason why we talk about it and the reason why we discuss it is because how are we trying to maintain health, like our healthy sub-male relations? So for them starting up, it was, okay, we saw what George did. We don't want to do what he did. Let's do this differently. How are we going to do this differently? And like today with our discussion over former generals having high roles and things like that. I think we talk about this to make sure that we are maintaining a healthy level of civil relations. So that's one thing I think a lot about as well, especially when rewatching the, the play. <laughs> oh my gosh, we forgot Aaron Burr. That's exactly what history wants you to do. Alice <laughs> <laughs> and I were texting about how, you know, the, the wonderful foreshadowing that happens. To, I mean, it's not foreshadowing. We all know how it ends. But the, yeah. <laughs> the foreshadowing and the number of times that they encounter each other and how each one of those encounters is a little bit different. But the, the great one when they are, and I am, I think, the only one on this call who has not actually seen the play because I was supposed to go next month and then... We had a global pandemic and it ruined everything, including Hamilton. Um, everything. It's so terrible. Um, but the moment where Burr is making his pitch to Washington in very sort of, even his pitch is a little bit, I don't want to say slimy, but it's a little bit like, hey, you're not looking so great right now, boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh -huh. Hamilton comes in and Washington gets, you know, gives him all of his attention. But there's this wonderful moment and it's in a military environment because they're talking to the commander as... I think they're both majors. I don't even remember. And they say, you know, oh, <laughs> you met Hamilton. And they both say, yeah, we keep meeting. <laughs> yeah, we keep meeting. And one of those yeah. meetings is in a very sort of a very military uh, environment. And then they meet again as lawyers. And then they meet again, you know, talking about their wives and their marriages. And they, you know, the way that the play shows their parallel lives is, is really, really awesome. But one of those points in those parallel lives is in, is in this sort of wartime encounter. What I was thinking about, it's it's sort of a classic story that you hear all the time, too, when generals choose their aide-de-camps, where you'll have the guy who's really ambitious and he goes in and he's trying to make the case for why he would be the best aide-de-camp. And then the next guy comes in and he wants nothing to do with it. And he just wants to go out and lead soldiers. And he's like, you're my guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so that that is very familiar, I think, to a lot of military people as well who've heard stories about that from time to time. Also, just the general officer drama seemed a little familiar, too. <laughs> <laughs> a little too familiar. Yes. The one thing with Burr that has always stood out with me from, like, when I first saw it to whenever I replay it to just rewatching it a couple hours ago <laughs> is the song, I Want to Be in the Room, Where It Happens. And so not directly Siv Milk, but definitely in terms of how do we have true representation of people who are making the decisions. He's just going on and on about how he wants to be in the room where it happens because he knows that's where the decisions are made. But like, and it's funny because it starts off with two Virginians and an immigrant walk into a room diametrically opposed. opposed. But at the same time, they all kind of still have like the same perspectives and interests. Well, not same interests, but like they're very much so a group that looks the same. And so what stands out to me is in terms of how we see our world today, making sure that we are making space for diverse voices and diverse experiences and perspectives to elevate up so that that 
when we are in the chance of making the decisions, you can look around the table and see true diversity that reflects America making decisions. So that song stands out to me just for different reasons. Um, but I definitely like it in terms of Burr's story because he is a person who, for all intents and purposes, should have been in that room, but he wasn't. And if he wasn't in the room, what, what's, what about people who also should be in that room, but like don't have the opportunities to rise up and get to the room? So that's another song that really stands out to me. That's a great point. And I will say as a career bureaucrat, the room where it happens is probably the one that resonates with my experience more. <laughs> there are just so many great lines about access to decision making and how, you know, Burr's sort of conniving, manipulating, trying to get into influence. It's a bit of the sort of extreme. You don't really want that because it's not clear why he wants to be in the room where it happens, because it's not like he has some overarching agenda or... <laughs> principles that he's trying to advance. He just wants to be in the room where it happens. And I think there's a little bit of that in all of us, but the desire to influence what's happening for good and to be in the room and, you know, the line of we don't get a chance to influence essentially what our late, our leaders trade away. I told Alice the other day, if you've ever sent your boss into a really important meeting after prepping him for like an hour, you know, that nerve wracking feeling you have of, you know, when it cut, when they're finally horse trading in the room, your job is done. You don't know what they're going to trade away for what it is you've asked them to achieve or what it is you, you think that everybody should be working towards. So that song has always felt the most like a sort of bureaucrat's anthem. <laughs> <laughs> Well, guys, I think with that, those are some good final points to land on. Well, this has definitely been fun. <laughs> yeah, I just love talking about my favorite musical with some of my favorite people and pertaining to my favorite topic. It's the best. Yay! Yay! Thanks for tuning in for this special bonus episode of Thank You for Your Service. If you enjoyed today's show, please share it with your friends on social media. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.